Good morning. I'm uh, glad to be here. It's always fun as the RUF campus minister getting to go around and preach different places, see different people. And I always make a point just to say thank you uh, on behalf of the work we're doing at Ole Miss. It wouldn't be possible without the, the support of members like you in local churches sending us amazing students and funds and just the prayerful support that y'all give us. I also found out that y'all will be at CPYC next week. I'll be there as well. That's either going to be good news or bad news for your students after this sermon. We'll see. But I'm excited to to spend some time with them next week. It sounds like y'all's youth group is amazing. Uh, I remember kind of as we kind of go into the text, I remember from my high school days or even before that, uh, one of the dreaded things about being a young person was always uh, this this anxiety that came along with, uh, a pickup football game or a pickup basketball game, because if you weren't the team captain, you were kind of put in this uh, little crisis where you didn't know where you were going to be picked, and where you were picked said a lot about who you were. Probably kind of said a lot about your um, you know athletic ability, said a lot about your likability, and so you always felt like your identity was on the line when you were about to be picked. And if you had a person that you liked, if you had a person that you trusted that was team captain. You knew you could rely on them to pick you. As we enter into this text today uh, with the uh, kind of conversion of Saul, who will later be known as the Apostle Paul, who I will inevitably confuse uh, their names. They're both the same person if I confuse them. I find it interesting that as Jesus starts to establish his people through the power of the Holy Spirit in this new kind of blossoming movement called the church, who he chooses to pick in his early round draft pick. He doesn't choose the most talented. He doesn't choose the most qualified. He chooses Saul. So what is there here? What might we learn about who Jesus is, his heart, his ability to use broken sinners like us, his ability to include broken sinners like we would often disqualify? Who is this Jesus? And so we're going to look at this story in three different points, just confrontation, community, and commission. Confrontation, community, commission. So let's look at that first one, confrontation. You saw at the end, uh, or you saw at the end of chapter 8, verse 3, that Saul and his condition that he was in was ravaging the church. He was bloodthirsty. If you go on to chapter 9, he was so bloodthirsty that he was uh, making plans to continue to ravage the church, to go to Damascus, to get letters from the priests so that he could bring people back. It says that he was breathing threats of murder against the Lord. That word breathing uh, in the Greek actually is kind of the word you would use for an animal that's like panting as they're about to attack. This is Paul, this is Saul's condition that we find himself at right before his conversion. He's in this animalistic, subhuman, kind of carnal state. This is the person who we would think would be furthest off. And it's in this condition that Jesus confronts Saul. Confronts Saul, blinds him with his light, incapacitates him, not allowing him to go to the full end of his depravity. The one who was leading this charge against Christians, against Jesus himself, as Jesus identifies, that he was persecuting him, is now being led. The one who was strong, self-confident, powerful, is now weak and powerless, having to be led into the city of Damascus. And I think here just in this interaction where Jesus confronts Saul with his grace, we get a little bit of a template of how Jesus' grace works on people. Now, that isn't to say 
that everybody who has ever you know, met Jesus or been converted, been, been regenerated, should have a Saul-like moment, this dramatic conversion. I don't think that at all. I think we get um, a lot of evidence in the Bible for both a gradual, maybe even uh, an unconscious, subconscious conversion where kids grow up as covenant kids in the church and don't know, don't remember a day where they didn't know the Lord. We also have dramatic conversions where people meet Jesus on, the road, on roads like Damascus and are confronted with a dramatic conversion. I'm not really saying that the details of the conversion are necessarily important, but I think what we see is both the extent and the effect that God's grace has on someone who comes to know Jesus. So let's first look at that one, the extent of God's grace. What we see in this passage is that grace is a grace that goes the whole way. In no way in this passage do we get any indication that Saul had a guilty conscience about what he was doing. In no way do we see that he was taking a step towards repentance or a step towards Jesus, a step towards sympathizing with this early church movement. Saul was actively on the road to destroy Jesus, Jesus and his church. What is so important about the extent of God's grace, a grace being a grace that goes the whole way? Well, imagine you have a view of Jesus' grace where it's a grace that goes halfway. I often talk with students about this. You know, when they talk about their conversions, when they talk about wanting to know the Lord, okay, yeah, I feel like Jesus is calling me, but I'm just not in that condition yet to accept that. I'm not in that condition to know him. Or if they recount their testimony, you know, I was really bad kid, didn't know the Lord, and I kind of went to the church service, I walked the aisle, I made the decision, and Jesus was there, ready to receive me. It's kind of an empowering thought, isn't it, that you had some agency in your salvation. Makes you feel like you made the choice. And we all like agency, don't we? It's good and right to feel like we have some sort of power in the, in the choices that we make. But at the same time, there's a problem when we play a role, or at least a major role, in our salvation, isn't there? What happens when you're confronted with your humanity? What do I mean by that? What happens when you start to doubt? When that initial fire for the Lord wears off, when you start to become uh, a parent or you age and you realize that you are not the believer that you thought you were. Perhaps you feel like you're in worse off condition than you were before your conversion. Well, if you're responsible for that conversion, if you had a role in accepting it, then you also have a role in losing it. A grace that extends the whole way is a grace that is able to comfort, is able to bring a lot of peace to the person who is fully human, to the person who still struggles with the flesh, to the person who knows that without God's grace, they would be lost. Second, what is the effect of God's grace in this confrontation with Saul? We see that it's a grace that's overpowering. In no way, again, do we get the indication that Saul could have stopped what was happening here. This powerful, prestigious kind of leader in this movement to persecute Christians was rendered powerless on the spot. He was helpless. He was incapacitated. And so we run into another problem also when we're thinking about God's grace. Do we, you know, have a choice in the matter whether or not to accept Jesus' grace? We talk about this subject a lot, irresistible grace, free will. I was even in Sunday school for a little bit of it. We were talking about free will. 
And kind of the mystery of salvation is both yes and no. Yes and no. We could have a role in rejecting it, but no at the same time we can't. Because in the story, we see here that Saul is completely outmatched. There's nothing that he could have done to overpower Jesus' grace here. Nothing that he could have done to choose not to have it. But at the same time, when Saul, later the Apostle Paul, is writing letters to the church, when he reflects on this moment, you see that the way he talks about his salvation is not as if it was forced upon him. It's as if something that he loves is now his. He says in 1 Timothy 4, 14, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Does this sound like someone who is mad that Jesus overpowered them? No, he would have it no other way. He wants nothing else for his life, his peace. In a sense, he chooses it now. He can't see what life looks like without it. This is a really silly illustration, but I did pass a sonic on the way here. And when we lived in Jonesboro, Arkansas, did RUF at Arkansas State for three years, there were eight Sonics in Jonesboro. Um, it, was, it was amazing. <laughs> and uh, a little bit of the routine in Jonesboro was that a lot of people would go in the afternoon for the happy hour and get uh, a big Diet Coke. I'd never been a fan of Diet Coke. Uh, I hadn't much thought about why someone would drink a Diet Coke when you could have the original, but aging over the uh, age of 30, I realized that you know, maybe I should take care of myself. If you've had Diet Coke before, you might understand that, you know, it's probably something you would never choose. But at the same time, once you have it, you can't not have it. <laughs> There's actually an addictive quality to it. I think you can look that up. But you go from never having it to being, you know, a week later in the Sonic drive through line getting a 44-ounce Diet Coke. <laughs> you would have it no other way. That's how grace works. You don't think you would choose it, but once you have it, you would never want to get rid of it. This is what Jesus allows us to have in his kindness. That once you find out the grace, the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the, the life that Jesus offers us in a relationship with him, you see what your life looked to look like, used to look like without him. You see the vanity of trying to pursue and be your own king. And viewing life with King Jesus is where life is truly found. John Stott says it this way when talking about conversion. He says, Divine grace does not trample on human personality, rather the reverse, for it enables human beings to be truly human. It is sin which imprisons, it is grace which liberates. It's what we see in this confrontation. But we also see that Saul is not the only person in the story that grace has to work on. Which brings me to my second point, community. There's a lot of points in the story. It's, it's a long story, 22 verses. had a student come up to me this past week. We've been teaching through the book of Acts, and he said, when are we going to do a short story? I was like, well, you tell him, take that up with Luke. Um, but we also see another character that Jesus chooses in his kindness and his wisdom to use in this story. And so I want to focus, among other parts, on this character of Ananias. Why did Jesus deliberately choose to use Ananias in Saul's conversion? Think about the situation. Ananias is confronted by Jesus in a similar way that Saul is confronted by Jesus with this vision. And Ananias is understandably hesitant when Jesus tells him to go and lay hands on this brother Saul. Saul's reputation precedes himself. Saul is known, kind of through reputation, as the one who has been killing Christians. 
Perhaps people that Ananias even knows. Very likely people that Ananias knows. There's no other way to describe who Saul was in Ananias' mind than an enemy and a threat. But still, the Lord insists that Ananias do what he tells him. Go find Saul. Lay your hands on him. I want you to look at verse 17 when Ananias finally gets to this moment where he accepts this call. He gently lays his hands on Saul. What does he say to him? He says, Brother Saul. The title that Ananias greets Saul with is not a title of an enemy. It's a title of family. You have to just think what this meant for both Ananias and Saul in this situation, don't you? That grace, through this kind of restored relationship between enemies, really had to kind of, it it blew all their categories for what grace actually could do in their lives. Ananias here is having his categories blown for who could be involved, who could actually be qualified for God's grace. Is he not? Someone like Saul. It's not just for the ones who are stand-up citizens. It's not just for the ones who are solid believers. It's not just for the ones who have kind of done life right. It's for the murderers. It's for the enemies. It's for those who who we would be prone to think were furthest from God. Ananias is having to reckon with the reality that if the gospel is actually true, then that means, based on what Jesus has done, that means everyone is qualified because the only qualification to be included in God's people, if grace is true, is that they don't deserve it. And this is often challenging, isn't it, for the church, us, myself included, to understand. We can get into the routine of showing up. We can get to the routine of, you know, going through our Christian life, doing admirable things like worshiping, reading our Bibles, uh, running our Christian homes in a moral, upright way. But there's always that kind of voice of the enemy that's ready to kind of pounce on us and say, you should be proud of yourself. You're the type of people that God would love, aren't you? It's not those. It's not the people that aren't doing life the way you're doing it. It's not the people that aren't showing up the way you're showing up. You should be proud of yourself. What Ananias needed, what we need, church, is to understand that God's grace is a grace that can reach everybody. It can reach those whom which we are thankful that we're not. And that should humble us. That's the power of Jesus' grace. At the same time, on the other hand, you have to think about what this meant for Saul, for Ananias to greet him in this way, don't you? How this would have melted his heart, how it would have reminded him that though he has been a murderer, Though he has been a liar, though Jesus has confronted him at his utter depravity, that he is still included, he is still family. About seven years ago, uh, a story ran on CBS News in in a small town in Michigan about a guy named Jamail McGee, who was wrongfully set up and accused of dealing drugs by a local cop named Andrew Collins. McGee had to fight these charges because they were false, ended up spending multiple years in jail, when finally Andrew Collins got caught doing more of this. Collins was insecure about his job performance, wanted to kind of make a name for himself as a young cop, and was setting people up. Finally came out that he did this, and McGee was freed. Collins actually had to spend time in jail a little bit himself. But they both stayed in this town once they were kind of released from from prison. They both stayed in this town, uh, this small town in Michigan, trying to remake and rebuild their lives, And they ended up both working at this coffee shop 
uh, called Mosaic Ministries, a, minis- a local ministry for people who are just trying to get on their feet and build their life again. And the first time that Andrew walked in for his first day of work and Jamal was there, his heart was scared, obviously. This is the man who we'd set up. So Andrew kind of got the courage up to ask for forgiveness. Jamal heard it and said, I forgive you. I forgive you. A few years, or a few months go past. They end up building a friendship. Ultimately, Jamal ends up telling Andrew that he loves him like a brother. You can imagine what this did to Andrew Collins. It broke him. It broke him. Jamal said the only reason that he could do this was because of who Jesus had been for him, how his sins had been forgiven. How could he withhold the sins of somebody else? But I'm sure Collins needed Jamal's forgiveness to understand just a little bit of the taste of what Jesus has to offer him as well, doesn't he? This is how God works among his people, works in relationships, works in our communities. He allows us to be the agents of grace in people's lives, inviting us to not only receive forgiveness from one another so that we understand just a little bit of how Jesus forgives us, but also to bestow forgiveness on on another, to give another person a little bit of a taste of who Jesus is for them. This is how the Christian life, this is how we endure in the Christian life. We act out the gospel in our relationships, the community. Last point in the story I wanted to, to focus on is this commission. Paul's, or Saul's call to ministry, he would later be known as Paul. If you want to look at um, verse 15 and 16 for a second, I'll point out what I'm looking at. The Lord tells Ananias about Saul, and he, says, and he tells him to go, and he says, He is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus, by his kindness, doesn't just to in- intend to change Saul's heart. He, in- he intends to change his vocation. This is what happens in every Christian's life. That if you come to know Jesus, your vocation is changed. Your purpose for living, your purpose for um, suffering even, is changed. And at first, that, that verse 16 didn't sit well with me. I had to think about it. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The reason it didn't sit, sit well with me, and perhaps to you, is that is the only reason that Jesus is calling Saul into ministry now, a ministry of suffering, is that just kind of a retribution for what Saul has done to Jesus' people? Is it kind of his way of paying back? As I kind of looked into this, read into this, wrestled with this, my only answer to this was no, of course not. Reason being is that grace, Jesus' love, acceptance, and participation in his kingdom is unconditional. We talk about that all the time. Unconditional grace. And to put suffering attached to that in his vocation would be to put a condition that Jesus is calling us to suffer for the sake of him just because, you know, to make up for all the bad things we did. That's a condition. And so Paul was not called by Jesus to be an apostle as a condition to kind of work off all the guilt that he had acquired beforehand. So what was up with this? Why was Saul, Ananias told that Saul was going to live this life of suffering? This is really where we get to the upside-down nature of the gospel. This is where it shines bright. Because ordinarily, when we think about suffering, we think about it having to do with punishment, like I did, retribution. 
But as Saul grows up into the Apostle Paul, as he continues to write, what we see is that this is not the way that he thinks about suffering, is it? The way that Paul thinks about suffering as he continues to suffer for the sake of the gospel is that suffering is an invitation to union with Jesus. Suffering is an invitation that invites him to draw closer to him, to enjoy more of his his benefits and less of the comforts and the leisure and the benefits that this world has to offer us. That any momentary suffering that Saul, later to the Apostle Paul, will ever have to face will never pale in comparison to the suffering that Jesus himself had suffered for him, for us, on the cross. Saul will never have to pay for the condemnation of his sin. Saul will never have to pay and be separated from God forever. Saul will only get to receive the benefits of being in union with God forever and restored and redeemed. And so suffering now for the believer is only an invitation to know the depths of the love of Jesus for you. Think about it this way. I think about it like parenting. Um, I grew up with with great parents, but I was always kind of a... uh, just kind of a jerk kid. I don't know. They're out there. Um, and I just felt a lot of entitlement towards my parents. Uh, I felt a lot of lack of appreciation for my parents. And I guess that's part of just being a teenager. You just, you know, can I've had enough, you know? It wasn't until I had my son about three and a half years ago that I realized uh, how much my parents really did love me and how much I had failed to really know and appreciate and savor that love. Because when I'm up at 4 a.m. changing diapers, when I'm rushing to the hospital to make sure this cough that my son has isn't something that's going to kill him, when we're spending all of our money, rather, on our leisure and food that we wanted to do and dates that we wanted to have, but we're spending it on our kids and more toys and baby clothes and more diapers, of course, it's only then did I realize that this was the extent of their love for me. I had to go through what they went through in some sense to know the depths of the love that they had for me, to know that the love that they had for me is what made me who I am. In some way, this is what suffering is like for the Christian. We will never be able to experience the suffering that Jesus took upon himself on the cross, and thank the Lord we don't. But in these sufferings that we experience as we try to live faithfully to Jesus, as we try to love our enemies, we try to love our families, we try to do the Christian life in community and all the frustrations that that involves, as we try to live in a fallen world where sin is still pervading, where the evil one is still crouching at the door, where sin or where sickness and hurt and death is still a part of this existence, it's only an enduring in that, acknowledging that this really is hard, that you understand, you get to start to get a little bit of a sense, a greater sense of what Jesus experienced for you. You get a little bit of the picture of what the heart of Jesus looks like, that heart that propelled him to come down from heaven, to leave the Father's side, to encounter willingly, humbly, this fallen world, to encounter the cross that was to take the wrath of God for us, to forgive, redeem, and restore you so that we will never have to experience the extent of the worst of our suffering that we deserve. And if this is the heart of Jesus, if this is the heart of Jesus, then I think this sounds like a God that is worth believing in and following. And so consider that the invitation from the text this morning. Let me pray for us.
Father, we thank you for your love of us in Jesus. We thank you that uh, it's a grace that goes the whole way, or else we would be lost. We pray that as we work this out in community, that you would give us patience, that you would give us the Holy Spirit uh, that allows us to forgive and restore and continue to uh, endure in community. We pray that you would give us the courage to own this commission that we have in the Christian life to encounter suffering and to not know it or to not think of it as punishment but as privilege. Help us see this, help us do this by showing us more of who you are for us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.